Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. I'm Christian Sager. And I'm Joe McCormick. And we're back for part two of our two-part episode on the Ig Nobel Prizes of 2016. If you haven't heard part one yet, you should go back, listen to that first, where we covered the first of five prizes we were discussing. Well, we we, did, we covered five prizes. Now we're going to cover five more. Yeah. Now, if you're stuck in a vehicle and you can't download the first one, this is the only one that's primed up, then just go ahead, because it's also yeah. got very fairly uh, modular. How about we give them just like a like one to two sentence description of what these are. The, yeah. the Ig Nobel Awards, they are, are given out by uh, Improbable Research Group. And uh, the idea is that they celebrate research that makes people both laugh and then think. And I guess I'm going to take the first prize that we discussed today. I want to talk about their Peace Prize for 2016, which went to a piece of research on BS. And before I get into it, I... I'm so sad that I I was not able to think of a non-profane and yet non-euphemistic word to use for this subject. Bull roar? How about that? Bull roar? Yeah, I think oh, that was okay. one that's been bull roar. Around. Okay, well, the subject is bull roar. That that is not the term they use, but uh, bull roar as a psycholinguistic phenomenon to take seriously and understand. And so the Peace Prize went to Gordon Pennycook. James Allen Chain and Nathaniel Barr, Derek Kohler and Jonathan Fugelsong for their scholarly study called On the Reception and Detection of Pseudo-Profound Bullroar, our substitution, published in the journal Judgment and Decision Making in November 2015. Uh, the second comment I want to make is that I'm actually going to give a kind of abbreviated take on this prize winner, not because it's not interesting, but because I actually want to come back and devote an entire full episode to the subject of bull roar. Uh, uh, and Robert, I, I hope you will join me for that. Oh yes, I'm always up for a little, uh, little BS. Uh, but anyway, th- this, this study and its critics would probably be the centerpiece of that, uh, because I think Bull Roar is a fascinating and honestly world-changingly important phenomenon to recognize and comprehend. Uh, but so how do you, how do you conduct research on BS or Bull Roar? That just seems kind of like it's a phenomenon of everyday conversation that's a little bit hard to quantify. But this study looked into the factors associated with a person's acceptance of a specific subset of bull roar that they call pseudo-profound bull roar. And uh, the, the authors define this as, quote, seemingly impressive assertions that are presented as true and meaningful but are actually vacuous. So are you talking like an outrageous overstatement of the obvious would... No, okay. that would not be an uh, an overstatement of the obvious would be a mundane statement. OK, uh, a su- piece of pseudo profound bull roar is a statement that actually contains no meaningful content, <laughs> true or false, but gives the implication of meaningfulness. I want to give you a few a few examples okay. of potentially profound statements. Let me know if you think this is profound. OK, some of these might be truly profound. Your desire fascinates intrinsic facts. That sounds meaningless to me. No, no, no. Give it a th- Oh, wait. Yeah. Okay. That's probably meaningless. No, no. Let's try another one then. How about nature drives the progressive expansion of destiny? That sounds like a flowery 
explanation of natural selection. These are like the, Overly the worst fortune cookies. <laughs> How about this? Your body creates subjective mortality. That too, that's too sounds like a, a true statement was translated into one language and back into English. <laughs> yeah. How about perception illuminates ephemeral positivity? Mm, okay. Yeah, I guess that could be theoretically true. But well, wait, what does that mean if that's true? Hit me with it again. Perception, perception illuminates ephemeral positivity. So if you can perceive with your senses in some way. Oh, but the see, positivity is ephemeral. If I were so editing. So then how could you see it? Yeah, surprise, surprise, up. both. Okay, sorry, both of you. None of these statements were written by a human being for any express purpose. They are all auto-generated by a website that assembles random New Age buzzwords into grammatically correct sentences. This is kind of like that website that was going around a little while ago where they took Manowar lyrics and uh-huh. they just generated uh, <laughs> lyrics from Manowar songs that were never written. Yeah, yeah. just uh, taking a, a selection of vocabulary that mm. you know is, uh, you know, that a certain maybe uh, rhetorical conversation group is fond of yeah yeah and then just mixing them up into nonsense okay but uh i want to offer offer some real proverbs for contrast so you there are such things as proverbs short statements how about this one i found this russian proverb on the internet or purportedly i mean are you gonna do a russian accent no i won't it's do not cross the brook for water Oh, okay. I thought about that for, yeah, that actually seems profound. That, that like, uh, is making a point about, uh, not multiplying labor unnecessarily in a kind of unthinking way. Yeah. And okay. if you have dirty feet, you're making that water dirty. And it retains it a certain amount of meaning yeah. across language, across culture, because I'm, I'm always encountering little proverbs where you hear them and you're like, ah, <laughs> oh, this, something's off. Maybe I'm, I'm just, I, I don't get the joke because I'm not in the culture. I want to give you one that I think is actually really good. Okay. Knowing is half the battle. Oh, uh, yeah, I know that I one. Think that's that, the G.I. Joe slogan. I think that's actually a great proverb. That's I, the thing. You've got to understand a problem before you can fight it. Yeah, it's like, uh, say, implicit racial bias, like the first step to overcoming it at all yeah. on a personal or institutional level is just recognizing, recognizing it. that it exists. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, so th- there are real proverbs that have meaning. Uh, there are statements that you could say are mundane. Uh, you could also put mundane statements in here that aren't really profound, but they're at least true and have content. Like, like pain don't hurt. Uh, Does that stick out? No, I'd say that might actually, that's either truly profound as a proverb or that might be some, some bull roar. Okay. Pain don't hurt. That's a good one. Uh, no, no, no. The, the straightforward mundane ones would be something like, uh, babies require constant attention. That's an example they give in the study. It's just, it's not profound. It's just a statement of a fact that seems pretty much true. Well, it could be profound depending on the, uh, the context. Yeah, that's true. mm -hmm. In a nursery, not profound. On a, on a fortune cookie, maybe. Well, I think a lot of these pseudo profound statements could be profound in the right context if you like define all the words Mm -hmm. in a certain way, you know? 
Uh, but anyway, so to come back to the study, so while, while some of the philosophical study of BS has looked into the behavior of the BSer, this study uh, actually tries to understand the behavior of the BSE. What makes a person receptive to this particular type of BS that we've just been sharing here? The pseudo profound statements, statements that seem at first glance to suggest some kind of importance or profundity, but then you start picking at them and you, they don't seem to actually mean anything. I, I think I have a new name for this, uh, this theory, the matrix theory, right? It's kind of at least the second and the third matrix movie, right? They seemed like they had a profound meaning to them, but then ultimately when you pull it apart, there's nothing there. Well, it, it kind of comes back to lyrics too, because I think uh, yeah. there are plenty of examples I can think of where you have like as part of a complete package. Hmm. They, they'll have these lyrics that, you know, they're throwing some, some cool words around, some cool, almost like, uh, you know, keywords for the song. Yeah. And with the music, with the vibe, with the beat, you kind of take it, your brain takes it, and it forms its own logic out of it. And forms oh, yeah. its own narrative yeah. out of yeah. it. Yeah, exactly. And I think maybe that's part of it, too, because, like, if you have this empty bit of, like, new age BS that's coming at you, it's... It may just be on a fortune cookie, but it may be presented by a charismatic person, mm-hmm. uh, maybe in the context of a, you know, a, a, a sacred space. Someone who has some kind of institutional authoritative validation just by the fact that, that some major publisher has put out a book with lots of statements like this in it. Yeah. Don't fear the reaper, baby. <laughs> How's that one? I think that's actually more really profound. That's like (laughs) making a statement that has, that has content. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, so, so there are people obviously who do get this feeling. They look at statements like this and they find meaning in them. They say, yeah, yeah, that's profound in vacuous pseudo profound statements. So what these people were looking at in the study was, are there personality factors correlated with people who find profundity in vague nonsense? In pseudo profound BS. And the answer was? The answer was yes, they claim to find some things, though okay. there, there are some critics of this study. I, I'm going to mention that in a minute, but. Are they the people that they pointed out? Uh, they might be, but, <laughs> but we'll see. Uh, but so anyway, the, the experimenters ran several tests where they asked participants to rate the profundity of randomly generated sentences, just like the ones that I was reading to you a minute ago. Okay. Uh, so they said, uh, you know, look, we are interested in how people experience the profound. Below are a series of statements taken from relevant websites. Please read each statement and take a moment to think about what it might mean, then rate how profound you think it is. Profound in this case means of deep meaning, of great and broadly inclusive significance. But in conjunction, so they're testing people saying, how profound do you think these vacuous statements are? But in conjunction with this, they also did a battery of all these different types of personality and intelligence tests. For example, one of their major hypotheses was that people who uh, find these types of statements profound are people who tend to be intuitive or reactive thinkers as opposed to what would be referred to in psychology as reflective thinkers. Reflective okay. j- j- means like analytical, using deliberate using analytical thinking skills. Yeah, analytical thinking. Um, and uh, and so they, they tested for plenty of other factors as well. And in the end, they claimed to find some correlation. So I'm just going to read a quote from their conclusion, quote, those more receptive to bull roar are less reflective. So they did think that they were more intuitive, less analytical, less reflective, lower in cognitive ability, i.e. verbal and fluid intelligence, numeracy, are more prone to ontological confusions. That means uh, 
having trouble telling the difference between literal statements and metaphorical statements. Okay. Um, conspiratorial ideation, conspiracy thinking, mm-hmm. and more likely to hold religious and paranormal beliefs and are more likely to endorse complementary and alternative medicine. Oh, dear God, if you applied this to the American election, I'm going to my hair out. So it's, uh, it's obvious already, right? This is a minor hit on the Internet where any new study that can be construed to show that other people are dumb tends to play well. Right. Uh, and so I've read some really interesting criticisms of both the popular media coverage of this study when it was released because, uh, like, there there were some media outlets that covered it with headlines like, do you love wise sounding quotes? Surprise, you're probably dumb. (laughs) As you can tell from my description, that's not really an accurate characterization of the study. And on top of that, there, there might be some reasons to question the methodology of the study itself. But like I said, I want to save that full discussion for our future episode that we're going to do on bull roar in all its glory. Um, but anyway, that, that is the, uh, the paper, but why is it amusing? I'd say a couple major reasons. One, because it has a cuss word in the title. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm surprised they got it published with that. Oh, I don't know. I, I feel like the, the, the concept of bull roar in its original linguistic form is, um, is an accepted concept in philosophy, especially going back to there's a really good essay. If you haven't read it, you should read it by Harry Frankfurt, published in 2005, called On BS. Mm-hmm. That is a is a, a philosophical attempt to define BS and distinguish it from other forms of communication, such as lying. OK, uh, so it's interesting. Uh, but they also I think it's also funny to people because it's just funny to mock people who seem to find profundity in vacuous statements. Yeah. And I, you know, I don't want to be, you know, elitist or whatever, but I can't, I, I must admit, I get a giggle when I see people post like inspirational quotes and I'm like, that doesn't mean anything. Surely, uh, surely I'll share this. Experience. Yeah. Yeah. No, no. I was just, it was making me think because, uh, you know, there's that, there's that extra level. It's kind of like a really bad movie, right? Mm-hmm. Where, if you accept, if you love the bad movie, like on face level, almost like it's not necessarily a good thing. I mean, love the movies you love. That's, that's mm-hmm. how I live my life. But I think of the bad movies that I can acknowledge that they're, they're, they're not great, mm-hmm. but that I love them uh, all the same. A lot of times I am, I'm bringing additional readings into what's happening and I'm kind of, I'm kind of spinning off and, and fan theorizing and, and trying to stitch it all together into a form that makes more sense and has more meaning to me. You're saying there are different ways to appreciate Michael Bay's Transformers films. Yeah. So oh, <laughs> don't you even go there. <laughs> I you knew know, that would needle you. You know, I cried at the first one and you saw the fourth one with me. Uh, I think saw is a generous word. <laughs> I, I sat in a room where some lights were going on in uh, front of me. It's amazing. Mike, uh, Mark Wahlberg in that movie. Oscar worthy performance. Well, like, like here's an example of a, of a, just a quick phrase. And this is actually a, like a Bible quote. Mm-hmm. Uh, my, my yoke is easy and my burden is light, mm-hmm. right? On the, on the surface, it's a, it's a basic uh, analogy. Hey, I've got this, uh, this thing for you, but don't worry. It's going to be easy to carry and tow. Uh, you're going to, this is going to be easy going for you. But anytime I see it, I always do a, di- a, di- a different read on it. And I think of light as in illumination, as in knowledge, oh. as in revelation, and which makes it this kind of frightening statement to say yeah. that, like, if you enter into my burden is illumination. Yeah. The light that 
blinds me, can, can sets me free, can also blind me, that sort of thing. So I like that, man. That's interesting. So I'm not saying I can do that with everything or that every BS statement is susceptible to some sort of a a, a different read. Mm-hmm. But I wonder if, if that is sometimes the case with the, these BS statements that get really picked up. Like there's maybe I'm dismissing them because I'm just judging them at face value. Hmm. Yeah. So I have a question for you, Joe. Yeah. One thing our listeners may not know is Joe went to graduate school to study poetry. Yeah. So now I'm thinking about this study in context of reviewing poetry, whether it's written by <laughs> uh the great poets of the world or by, you know, um maybe your, your classmates or maybe the students that you were teaching, right? So does this apply to that, the idea of there being something profound in a poem when maybe there's not and it's just vacuous? But, yeah, maybe maybe that's a good point. I mean, so if I read a poem, a lot of great poetry contains intentionally like self-contradictory or kind of absurd uh, statements that Mm – that are designed to create an effect, but they're not necessarily designed to communicate information that's true. Yeah. So, I mean, so there's I wonder like a formalistic maybe, way. Yeah, maybe some people participate with these profound New Age quotes. Just they're interacting with them in the same way that I would interact with a poem. I'm not expecting it to tell me something that is an insightful, true statement about reality, but I'm expecting to have an experience with language. I I think this would be a a really interesting study to subsequently apply to the field of poetry in some way. You know, like what they're always telling you when you're in a discipline, especially uh, a discipline in the humanities, right? Like you have to take something that pre-exists, that's been studied before, and then you have to take it to the next level. You have to add something new to it. This seems like it could be a very interesting way of studying certain types of language use. Poetry immediately comes to mind, but I mean, you could say it about anything, right? Well, like, yeah. Are you really just suggesting that you think poetry is BS? Well, no. Well, you could, <laughs> no, I don't think that. Well, but I'm just, you, could, you could boil it down and you could say all poetry is BS in the same way that you could say all acting is lying. Uh... Jeez, I don't know if I would agree with either of those. No, I mean, I would not yeah. agree with them, but yeah, yeah. you could, if you just boil it down, you strip it away of all complexity, you could say, yeah. one actor is just somebody who gets on a stage and lies about who they are sure. and what they're doing. Yeah. I guess I'm just imagining, here's an imaginary scenario, right? You've got a, a poetry professor who's just been doing it for 30 years. They've seen everything cro- come across their desk and they're grading freshman poems and they're coming through it and they're at home alone. They're drinking a whiskey, uh, and they're, they're going through all these with a red pen and they just go, Oh, this is just BS. This is vacuous. There's nothing here. F. And then they flip it over. Well, I mean, I think most of the time you don't, I don't know. Maybe some professors do. I think most professors don't grade poems as like you get a grade for how good your poem was. Yeah. But, uh, it, but I don't know that. Yeah, I mean, if it does not induce delight or if it does not make you feel anything that is worth feeling, then it is not a good poem. Right. So I guess like that's a, that's where I'm going at with this thing, right, is that like both in the in the study and practice of poetry, there's sort of subjective nature of what it it's supposed to do or what it may do. It seems like the same thing could be said of some of these proverbs. I mean. Not the like the computer generated ones that you used earlier, like made me feel anything, but they might for somebody. Well, yeah, I mean, with some of these statements that are generated by the computer every now and then I'd see one and I think, oh, yeah, maybe I could I could sort of make sense of that if if I was trying. Hmm. 
even though you know it's uh it's just random words yeah what's the what's the monkey uh the infinite monkey theorem yeah so that one where you have an infinite amount of monkeys and they're hammering away on typewriters and yet one of them will eventually write what is it like the great novel or something like yeah, that or, or say the play by shakespeare, shakespeare. Yeah. but i think yeah. that, that's given infinite time as a perimeter uh, yeah okay okay well i mean it just goes to show you how language is subjective in general Wow, so we've tread, we've actually tread into the Library of Babel now in this conversation. Oh boy. Uh, sorry, I gotta say one more thing and then we're done with this. Uh, uh, we can argue about why it might be important or might not be important as an individual study, but one thing I definitely will stand up for is that the subject of BS or bull roar, uh, and the human propensity to be impressed by bull roar is a truly profound, important phenomenon in education, politics, culture and religion, advertising, and so on. Oh, yeah, absolutely. BS makes up a significant portion of all human communication in everything from political speeches to first date chatter, self-help literature. It's all over the place. And it is, for that reason, worth our time and attention to understand its rhetorical function. It's not just filling time. It's also making us do things. Right. We need to understand it. As a piece of rhetoric, it's persuading people to either do things or think things or believe things. But in a very strange and oblique way, because it's not necessarily communicating content. Rather, it's making it's making impressions that influence our behavior in, in indirect ways that are hard to understand. But anyway, we should take a quick break, and when we come back, we will hear about uh, some more deceptive thinking in the Psychology Prize for Lies and Liars. All right, we're back. Okay, so this one's mine. This is the Psychology Prize from the Ig Nobels, and it was published in Acta Psychologia in 2015. Uh, the paper is called From Junior to Senior Pinocchio, A Cross-Sectional Lifespan Investigation of Deception. <laughs> Basically, they're looking at how people lie. Uh, the authors on this were Gordon Logan, Evelyn D.B., Martin De Shriver, Christina Sukotsky, and Bruno Verschure. Uh, I, sorry, some of those were, uh, Belgian names that I'm, I'm probably butchering. I apologize. Here's the gist of this paper. Uh, Gordon Logan, sort of like the lead on this. He's a professor out of, uh, Vanderbilt University. Uh, and he and his colleagues, they wanted to look into lying. They wanted to study the act of deception across the human lifespan looking for age-related differences in the proficiency of lying and how often we as human beings lie. So they sampled over a thousand people between the ages of six and 77, and they had them perform reaction time-based deception tasks to assess how proficient they were at lying. (laughs) So... So are six-year-olds the best at lying? Well, you're about to find out. Okay. They're pretty good. Uh, <laughs> as with, as Robert probably knows, although you, uh, Bastion's four now. Yeah, right? I, I honestly am not sure he's told a lie yet in really? my life oh. with him. Like it, like that, I think I mentioned this in a previous episode. Yeah, like his, yeah. Uh, his 
lying ability doesn't seem to have really come online yet, so it's, yeah. a, it's a magical time. Well, what get ready. do children start to lie? I'm not certain off the top of my head. Well, these people have a theory. Their theory, and, and the results somewhat conform to this, is that with most age-related changes, there's a U-shaped pattern. But here, it's specifically with inhibition control and lying. Uh, so they think that we start getting more accurate at lying during childhood. So we start learning how to lie mm-hmm. at six. Sorry, quick, quick. What do you mean by accurate at lying? Like better at convincing people of yes. a lie? Yeah. Okay. Uh, and we excel at it in young adulthood. And then we get worse at it through adulthood. Now, it seems to peak in adolescence and decrease in adulthood. For the purposes of their study, they define young adults as 18 to 29 years old. Young children were six to eight. So you got two more years before he starts lying to you. And the eldest participants were 60 and over. Now, the U-shape comes back around again, though, right? So when they start getting into the 60 and over range, they seem to start lying more. They're not necessarily better at it, but for some reason, they're, and this is based on self-reporting, they're saying that they lie more often. Huh. Now, their subjects were members of the public who visited the Science Center Nemo, which is in Amsterdam, and they basically pulled them in and they asked them to participate in the study. The questions that they were given were very simple, general knowledge things like, can pigs fly or is the grass green? And they were supposed to give yes or no answers. A skilled liar could answer yes very quickly to can pigs fly, while a poor liar would delay or accidentally give you the honest answer. Oh, okay. While they're answering, the participants would push a button if the statement was supposed to be true or false. They also had a color flag that would pop up on a screen in front of them, and that would instruct them whether they were supposed to lie or tell the truth. So they had like kind of multiple stimuli going on here. Okay. That so would... it's sort of a complex cognitive task. Yeah, exactly. Now, to measure their lying frequency, the researchers asked them to self-report on the number of times they had told a lie in the last 24 hours. On average... These people reported telling two lies in the last 24 hours. Again, this was U-shaped. Teens lied the most, and then it (laughs) dropped off in adulthood and then increased again in older age. So parents of teens in the audience, is this the case? Yeah, we'd love to hear from you. So do you you think you're... uh, your adolescents are lying to you more and more? No, Uh, they tell the truth all the time. (laughs) I I feel like I was at my most deceptive when I was a teenager. Yeah, yeah. Well, apparently the oldest group lied at the same frequency as the youngest participants. So they also wanted to test inhibitory control. So the researchers had the participants perform what was called a stop signal task, where they pressed a button to indicate as fast as possible whether an X or an O had appeared on screen. Now, 25% of the time, a tone would sound to tell them that they had to cancel their response. The later the tone sounded in the task, the harder it became for them to withhold their responses. So think about it like you're you're hammering the keys for X and O, X and O, X and O. You get into a pattern. And then the later in that the tone sounds off, the harder it is to stop yourself. Mm -hmm. So the participants with greater inhibitory control, they found that they could usually cancel their response, even when the signal was given very late. Now, this ability 
increased through childhood and peaked in adults. Performance after that age remains stable. So basically adulthood onward, uh, your, your ability to uh, control your inhibitions kind of levels out. Uh-huh. Now, what's important about this is the performance on the stop signal tasks did not correlate strongly with the lying proficiency. Okay, so why is this amusing? Well, haha, because it's all about lying, right? Mm. And how how good we are at deceiving one another, or how often we lie. Uh, uh, old people and children lying is funnier than adults lying. Yeah, I guess <laughs> I guess that is. Yeah, uh, this study also doesn't really tell us anything about one person's ability and propensity to lie. It's just sort of broadly based on these people. Uh And then this is the funny thing. They even asked Logan this in one of the interviews I read with him. They said, well, how do you know your subjects weren't lying to you? And he just said self-reporting. Yeah. in the self-reporting. And he goes, oh, we don't. (laughs) So (laughs) it's all like, you know, it's all based on self-reporting. So who knows? Um, there are some important lessons to be learned here, though. The first thing is, this is a quote from Logan. He says, I don't know why they selected this for the Ig Nobel Prize. It's supposed to make you laugh and then think. He's referring to the Ig Nobel Prize. Maybe the laughing is, quote, why would anyone study lying? And the thinking <laughs> is, because lying presents interesting cognitive challenges that liars must overcome. Hmm. It confirms our assumption For instance, that young adults lie the most and the best. So we get that out of it, right? They also found that most people don't lie very often, but a few people lie a lot. Their theory is that this is all part of age-related inhibitory control. But now going back to the actual results, when they compared the lying results with the inhibitory control results, they found that they didn't correlate, right? So their, their theory was actually proven wrong. The researchers, however... Uh, kind of backpedaled a little bit and they said, well, there are different types of inhibitory control and we might need to uh, do some more studies and find some different way to measure that. Okay. The results, I want to point this out too. The results are a little skewed. Half the participants reported that they didn't tell any lies in the last 24 hours. So over 50% of the lies were told by what they referred to as prolific liars. <laughs> and, only 9% made up the total sample as prolific liars. Huh. So it gets skewed because you get 9% of these people were just lying a lot. According to what perc- they admitted. Yeah, exactly. Self-reporting. And then 50% said they weren't lying at all. So yeah. eh, I don't know. Well, I mean, li- if hmm. I don't know. If you're a prolific liar, would you also lie about whether or not you had lied? Yes, I I. Yes. I would think so. I would, I would think that like, it's almost like addictive, right? Based on what I've, I've seen on television recently, that seems to be the case. <laughs> this is that, uh, what the show, what is it called? Just Liar? I don't know what you're talking about. No, no, I was talking about a, a different television series that, uh, I think is a three part series this What's fall. I, I was thinking of the Tim Roth TV show Lie to Me, where like uh, he can uh, just like immediately tell whether somebody's lying or funny not. Funny story. Just last night, Robert, on your recommendation, Rachel and I, uh, my wife Rachel and I have been watching Buffy the Vampire Slayer for the first time. <laughs> Neither of us had seen mm-hmm. it before. It's on Netflix. We're working our way through it now. It's, uh, cheesy in the first season, but also kind of delightful. Mm-hmm. And we just watched the episode called Lie to Me that's about kids who want to become vampires. Huh. I don't remember this episode at all. Oh, it's pretty it's good. Season one? Season two. Oh, okay. That's when it started really picking up. But, yeah. Huh. My favorite so far is the the horrible episode in season one about the demon that gets on the internet. 
<laughs> I don't remember that one either. Anytime in the nineties when somebody got on the internet that it's just, it's ridiculous. Huh. Remember Wh- the X-Files episode when oh, the yeah. internet was like possessed? Which was the Hellraiser movie where Pinhead goes online? Oh God. There, yeah. It was like, it was one of the, <laughs> the several, they were like doing one direct video sequel a year where they brought in Doug Bradley for like one scene on each film. Okay. Yeah. Okay, I think it's time to move on to the next study. How, how about we talk about some horses? Oh yeah, let's uh, let's let's bring on the the white horse. What what do you uh, gentlemen think of when I when I mentioned the white horse? Well, you mentioned it earlier, and I immediately said, "Wait, is that a Patty Smith song?" But it turned out that it was. Uh, she just has an album called Horses. That's a great album, by the way. Yeah. I love it. Uh, but yeah, white horse. I think of what cocaine is that right? Yeah, yeah. I've been through the ride, desert right. on a horse with no name. Wait, no, that's heroin, right? Um, was that about heroin? I did not. I, I don't know. Huh. Horses usually, I mean, just the, from my time on the street, that's <laughs> usually what people refer to heroin as. Well, there, there is a, a song, if you want to ride, ride the white horse, uh, it's about, yeah, about the white horse as drug culture. We are uh, not encouraging slang. casual drug use. But the, the white horse, of course, is also the, the white horse, the pale horse. That mm-hmm. is what death rides in on, correct? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, it's also the, the, the steed of many, uh, heroic knight. Uh, many a, a noble prince rides in on a white horse. We like the image of the white horse. We've bred to 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 select white horses as much as possible in many cases. But black uh, horses are black beauties. Well, they're beauties. I mean, all horses are beautiful. Yeah. I, I, you know, uh, dapples and grays, uh, pintos and bays, all of them. <laughs> but uh, but the but the white horse has a particular uh, status with us. You know, both symbolically and as a an actual animal. But with that privilege status, uh, there are a few um, negatives as well. I mean, uh, for, um, on one hand, uh, in the wild, white horses suffer from predation more uh, oh, is because that right? they stand yeah. out. And yeah. I, I imagine yeah, that would make sense. I imagine this probably makes the most sense in places that are not covered in snow. But uh, but yeah, it's going to draw the attention of predators more. Uh, and then another big thing is that they're highly susceptible to ultraviolet uh, solar radiation due to their coloring, so they frequently suffer from malign skin cancer and oh. visual deficiencies. Oh, no. Yeah. But, and this is where we get to our Ig Nobel Prize winner, uh, the the, uh, the physics prize, uh, as a 2010 Hungarian study published in the Proceedings of the Royal Society B reveal, uh, white horses have one excellent advantage that has nothing to do with how pretty we think they are or what drugs they, they represent. Um, white, gray, like light gray, you know, and, and albino horses are far less susceptible to being, uh, to, to being fed on by blood sucking, uh, tabanid flies. Which are, uh, you know, like a mini, a blood sucking insect is a known disease vector. Okay. So, as they reveal in their studies, uh, in their study, the, the flies used reflected polarized light from a horse's coat as a signal to find a suitable host uh, to feed yeah. upon. So that means they're attracted mainly to black and brown fur coats. Throw in a white fur coat and they're not, they're not going to be as drawn to that animal. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, the researchers learned this by conducting field observations, followed by experiments that involved horse models, and then they measured the uh, reflection polarization patterns of living horses with special optical equipment. Specifically, they investigated via polarimetry. This is the, the measurement and interpretation of the polarization of uh, transverse waves, in this case, light waves. So... 
Uh, I have to admit that that I didn't quite get the humor on this. Yeah, I don't see how this is it. funny, right? Because it, it seems it's poor horses. Seems yeah. I mean, if you're if you're rearing animals, I mean, parasite management is an inherent part of of the process. Yeah, maybe it's just funny because it's uh, I don't know flies on horses. I guess. I mean, but it's it's a horse. It's not a goat. Horses, uh, horses are not as funny as goats. Wait, not. but it seems like you're implying that there's a punchline somewhere down the road here. In a, in a sense. Okay. Uh, so th- this is one of those instances where the researchers were honored for not one, but two papers. Okay. So there's the, the white horses and their susceptibility, uh, to, um, uh, the attention of blood sucking insects. But they also apply their techniques to another issue that I imagine is, is, is not close to anyone's heart. Okay. And that is dragonflies landing on, on gravestones in, uh, cemeteries. Okay. What, what, is that like a, Bad luck omen in the Ukraine. No, I I don't think at all. Like basically, what happened is the researchers, you know, were just hanging out near some Hungarian cemeteries, and they noticed, hey, there there are a lot of dragonflies landing on those blood, those specifically on those black shiny uh, headstones. Uh, yeah, yeah. They said, well, what's going on there? And they uh they found that yeah, the the insects were actually treating the gleaming head uh, tombstones as if they were water. Okay, mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. and this 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 lines up with three different modes of behavior. They perched uh, persistently in the immediate vicinity of the chosen gravestones, and then defended the perch against other dragonflies. Uh, flying individuals repeatedly touched the horizontal surface of the shiny black tombstone uh, with the uh, the ventral side of their body, and pairs in tandem position, i.e., mating. Yeah, um, they frequently circled around these black. Gravestones. Huh. So, so our, our grave markers are sex beacons for the dragonflies of the world. Yeah. Uh, so, so it would seem. And so they, they, they busted out their uh, polarimetry equipment again and they found that indeed the black gravestones, like smooth water surfaces, reflect highly and horizontally polarized light. Under natural conditions, this means dragonflies detect water by means of the the horizontally polarized reflected light. Now, this is funny, of course, because could there be, on the surface of things, could there be anything more absurd than studying flies landing on a tombstone? Like, what is that, how does that affect anybody? Right, yeah. Well, at least we get a better understanding of uh, dragonfly relationships to their uh, ecosystem and water. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but... But here's the thing, and this is, and I had to take the step of reading this, and then it sunk home for me. Okay. So dragonflies, not only do they land on water, not only do they they land on it when they're tandem and yeah. they're they're mating, they also deposit their eggs in water. Yeah. So this is where we get to the idea that gleaming tombstones could constitute a potential uh, ecological trap. It's like discarded bottles uh, stealing all of the mates for the beetles. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. The idea is that in there's not a, there's not any data to back this up to say that these these headstones are definitely impacting dragonfly reproduction and dragonfly population, but it kind of serves as a it's interesting and 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 potentially important because it serves as an example of just a, a wild accidental means just one of many in which we are we are manipulating and disturbing um, a, a natural organism's uh, life cycle. Yeah, you know, in ways yeah. we didn't even think of, huh? Because they could conceivably be then laying their eggs on these tombstones, and they're you know, to, to with with no uh, you know potential survivability. It's interesting because I guess I just assumed that the dragonflies would land and 
through tactile sense by touching them would go, oh, this isn't water and fly yeah. away. But but I, I guess it comes down to it's kind of like with with uh, sea turtles, you know, and depending on the light mm. of the moon. And then you throw in this artificial thing that yeah. that lines up with the expectations for moonlight in at least two key areas. That's all it takes. Hmm. Hilarious. <laughs> yeah, the the hilarity is, is subjective on this one, but but certainly I think the the sort of the the, the huh aspect yeah. of it definitely uh, works. I don't know about you guys. I am going to have a hearty chuckle the next time I see dragonflies <laughs> in tandem on a tombstone. <laughs> so next up is the chemistry prize from the Ig Nobels this year, which was actually given not to a scientific researcher, but to an auto manufacturer, Whoa. Volkswagen, for, quote, solving the problem of excessive automobile pollution emissions by automatically electromechanically producing fewer emissions whenever the cars are being tested. Huh. Yeah, well, that doesn't so, seem funny either. No, it's not. Well, it yeah, actually kind of is. <laughs> okay. I guess it's kind of funny because, the, I mean, the effects are not funny. There was no study here. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, it would be amazing if Volkswagen had some team of chemists that came up with a way of uh, carrying on fossil fuel combustion and giving the same performance in the car while producing fewer emissions, but eh, nah, it didn't happen. That is not what happened. Instead, this is a joke prize given to Volkswagen for the fact that in 2015, they got caught cheating, mm. specifically and intentionally engineering their cars to cheat on emissions testing. Wow. So, I didn't know that. Oh, you didn't, what, really? You didn't yeah. No, I, yeah. I didn't. I must have missed that news. Well, I think I may have an explanation for this. Did you allow, in the last couple of years, did you allow Volkswagen to install any devices on your body? Oh, yeah. <laughs> the brain-computer yeah. interface. That, that was what it was, was I was trying to share dreams with a Volkswagen. Oh, yeah. And that must be what it was. I just It filters out any bad information, negative publicity <laughs> about Volkswagen. I must say, this is a very clever and ingenious way to get around the problem of automobile emissions. Mm, yeah. Yeah. So uh, how did this work? How'd they get around this? Well, modern cars are very computerized. We all know that now. They're not the dumb mechanical machines of the 1950s. Uh, and because they're so computerized, it is possible to alter their performance in response to pre-specified sets of conditions. And this could mean, you know, some really nice kind of sci-fi seeming features to, to present in future cars. Like maybe you could have a car that has sensors that automatically detect fog or icy roads and when it detects those conditions, the car shifts into a performance mode called safety mode, where it changes certain things about how the car operates to be safer. Or it could mean that the car detects when it's having itself probed for emissions testing and automatically shifts the car's performance into eco-friendly mode. That's and what I do whenever I'm being probed for eco-friendly testing. It's kind of like if uh, right before you go to the doctor, you're really healthy the week. You yeah. like you, you stop eating all the junk food and you know doing your drugs and everything. Uh, but this doesn't seem illegal at all. <laughs> so it was highly illegal. Many diesel vehicles manufactured by Volkswagen were created with a function that does exactly this. It was known as a defeat device that was designed to get around the emissions testing, and it was done entirely without the knowledge of the driver. I want to be clear about that. The drivers weren't at fault. They thought that they, I mean, they, they had were paid just buying up. a car that they thought was ecologically friendly. Exactly. Yeah. So these were diesel vehicles, and with diesel, it's not exactly the same emissions profile that you would get with a normal 
normal like gas burning car. Mm-hmm. With diesel, the the main problem in these emissions were uh, nitrogen oxides or NOx. But anyway, so in the case of the Volkswagen cars in question, there were just functions in the computer that controls the car that said, hey, when the car is being driven, you can just turn off all those pollution controls and the car will drive great. You know, it feels really zippy, peak performance. But then when the car detects, uh, I'm feeling some poking and things are lining up. Yeah, it looks like it's time for an emissions test. When the car detects that a test is going on, it alters the performance to turn on pollution limiting features to make it look like the car is an eco-friendly low polluter. How much harder do you think it was to install that device than to just make the car ecologically friendly? Oh, I, I think it was, it, this was the easy solution. Solution. No, definitely this yeah. solution was easier because the problem is that things were you had design considerations in conflict. Like you can't have a car, at least with today's technology, nobody's figured out a way to make a car that performs as well as they wanted the car to perform right. at the same time having this lower emissions profile. And so their way around that was to cheat. And so uh, why did this happen? Obviously, the the design priorities uh, I mentioned. But for some of these vehicles, it ended up with NOx emissions that were maybe like 10 times or even 40 times what they were supposed to be. And yeah, so that that obviously was very bad. They got caught. Investigators figured out this is what they were doing, and they have been cited by the U.S. government for violations of the Clean Air Act. And so, yeah, uh, why why is this amusing? Why is this study amusing? I was going to say it's not a study. I guess why is this uh, R&D, corporate R&D amusing? Obviously, because they're cheating. Their company's solution to a problem in design was just to cut corners and cheat. I feel like I remember the, the Ig Nobels did something similar to this last year. Maybe this is like an, uh, an annual uh, part of the ceremony is that they choose something that's not an actual study and they yeah. just kind of make fun they, of they occasionally, yeah. There are times when uh, no one is going to accept the award. Because right, yeah. <laughs> kind of I'm a, wondering, yeah, there probably wasn't was a representative from Volkswagen. You, you watched the ceremony. Did anybody show up to accept this? I was watching it on double speed and oh, okay. I definitely didn't see anybody from Volkswagen show up, yeah. So, you, no. You know, here's one of the interesting things about it. Like, it, it, I it can't help but think, and granted, it's not a one-to-one, but you can't help but think of... of um, of technology as as uh, an evolution of form, yeah. And in in natural uh, selection, the, nobody comes around and says, "Okay, hold on, all these um, this particular lightning bug that is um, that is mimicking this other type of lightning bug, uh-huh. it's a deception. This is against the rules. We're shutting it down." Right. <laughs> that doesn't doesn't happen exactly like that. So, but, but also in I mean in nature it's just real performance. Real performance is the only thing that's really true. tracked. There's no like way to cheat on a regulations test because I guess nature has no regulations. But it's kind of a survival thing, right? Like this is is is. is is the Volkswagen in question able to perform at a high enough level without being caught? You know what? It's it's perverse incentives in a way, or not mm. perverse. I mean, the, the problem is that the emissions test doesn't test the thing they're actually trying to test, which yeah. is how is the car performing normally during most of its operating time? You, it's impossible to test that without, I guess, like having some kind of reporting device installed on the car that's going to be always sending feedback to... 
I don't know, government agency or something. Huh, sounds okay. like that's something people probably wouldn't want. That sounds like some you, communist stuff right there. But what you, are you trying to suggest, <laughs> Joe? Yeah, you've got this problem that if you, if you can make a car that can figure out when the emissions are being tested, it can alter its performance accordingly. Hmm. But also, why is this study important? Well, obviously, this type of pollution has serious consequences. As I said, uh, according to the EPA, the Volkswagen's actions were a gross violation of the Clean Air Act uh, and could also be the cause of disastrous secondary effects, like as a pollutant, uh, NOx has been linked to health effects like asthma attacks and other respiratory diseases. I know I've seen it implicated in emphysema and bronchitis. And NOx also contributes to ground-level ozone and particulate matter concentration, which in turn has been implicated in premature death from cardiovascular illness and respiratory effects it, yeah this is uh this is no good what they did and uh and i'm i'm glad they were caught well there's i can't argue with that part of me just thinks well wait a minute why couldn't uh, why wasn't the solution here just to uh you know find a find an audience for the car that doesn't care so much about performance I don't know. I, I don't think about if I if I'm like in the market for a car, maybe I'm just not a car person. I'm not in the market for one that, oh, I want the one that feels like it really accelerates quickly. Yeah. And and oh, my God, the torque. It's amazing. Yeah, more, that's, that's more communism, <laughs> more communism. You clearly don't uh, understand a car like a real American does. I guess I, I maybe don't. I don't know. We'll, we'll have to we'll I mean, chat as as with it, Scott off, off uh, line. Yeah, Scott, 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 Scott probably. I, I wouldn't be surprised if the car stuff, car stuff guys uh, did an episode on this. Well, actually, we did an episode of Forward Thinking on uh, the Volkswagen scandal that Scott and Ben came as guest hosts on. Oh, oh okay. Okay. Well, we'll have to include a link to that episode on the landing page for this episode. Sure. Yeah. Uh, but hey, we have one more prize to discuss, and I believe it has something to do with dead flies. Yeah, so we're going from the sublime to the ridiculous here. Although uh, I I have an affinity for this study here. <laughs> uh, the, so this is the literature prize. Uh, it goes to Frederick Schuberg, uh, and he wrote. This has actually been out for a while now, but it's only recently been translated into English. He wrote a three-volume autobiographical work about the pleasures of collecting flies, uh, flies that are dead and flies that are not dead. Uh, the volume, the first volume is called The Fly Trap, but the three-volume series is called The Path of the Fly Collector, or A Fly Collector. Um, he attended the ceremony. He's a Swedish writer and biologist, and uh, the award goes to all three volumes. So he lives on this sparsely populated island in Sweden, and catches flies on them. That's just his thing. And he wrote these books about the experience of that and just kind of being part of nature and hanging out and catching flies and collecting them. Huh. Um, they're very popular in Sweden. They've sold hundreds of thousands of copies there. And in Germany, France, Russia, and Norway, it's only recently been translated and released in Britain, Italy, Spain, and the U.S. Now, the island he lives in is called, I, I believe it's Runmaru. Small island that's part of the Stockholm archipelago. He's lived there since 1986, and this, the whole thing is only 15 square miles. Now, get this. When his family first moved there, they lived in a derelict house for 10 years what? without any running water. Whoa. They now, they still live there, but they now live there in their own house that they built there, right? But like uh, an interview I read with him, he was basically like, we wanted to live there. I wanted to hang out with the flies, but... Uh, we couldn't really afford 
to build the home that we, we could. So, uh, his poor kids and his wife and him didn't have running water for 10 years. So why is this amusing beyond the running water situation? Well, people seem to see the act of catching and cataloging hoverflies as useless. Uh, and they find it hard to categorize these books too. Like what are they? Are they natural history? Are they popular science? Are they autobiography? Um, and here's the thing. They're certainly not being read by hoverfly enthusiasts. Uh, he they're himself. Not? Well, I mean, they are, but it's not just them that are buying it. Oh, so like Schoberg, he estimates that in all of Sweden, there's like 25 people who collect these flies. So they're not the only people that are buying this book. It's like it's it's a popular culture phenomenon <laughs> in Sweden. <laughs> so it's not just uh, the familiars of vampires. Yeah, exactly. Well, maybe he's a vampire and he's making all his familiars oh, okay. read them. <laughs> Who knows what he's learned from these flies? But uh, he says this. He was very excited about the 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 award. He said the Ig Nobel Prize beats everything. At last, I hope to become a rock star, leather pants, dark sunglasses, groupies, all that. <laughs> Fun, funniest thing from the Ig Nobels, I think, this guy. Uh, the Guardian uh, described his book as being, quote, a bit like dinner with a witty European intellectual, wry, digressive, and packed with fantastically clipped observations. Uh, everything I've read about those, these books makes them sound really interesting. And so I think about uh, this one uh, in contrast to the goat man. Like this guy goes out and he's kind of become one with nature. He's really obsessed with this one very niche thing. Uh, but he's, there's something to it, right? He's bringing something to people that's beyond. I, I wonder if you're responding to the fact that this guy sort of in a way has made this a, a life's work versus yeah. the oh, goat yeah. man took a, you know, six day holiday. Exactly. Yeah. Goat man took a six day holiday and dressed up in a costume and was like, look at me, look at me, look at me. And so I see this guy and he's like, he's made it his life's work to collect these flies. There's something noble about but that. But did he ever stop to try and become a fly? Well, you know what? He doesn't say anything about that. But I mean, the fact that his family w- went without running water for 10 years, it sounds like he got pretty close. Uh, according to the New York Times book review, this, the, the series of books are a quirky meditation on the pleasures of collecting and an obsession with the natural world. And, oh, this is the other thing I wanted to mention. It has two themes, the collecting theme, but then he also wants to use them as an opportunity to recover the forgotten outsider. So each book has a forgotten outsider that it focuses on. Uh, the first one, maybe it's not the first one, but the, these are the three. The Swedish painter Gunnar Widfross earthworm specialist Gustav Eisen and the inventor of the gigantic fly trap, which many know as the mega malaise, Rene Malaise. Now, apparently Malaise's trap is like very well known to the entomology community, but he is not. So, uh, Schubert used this, these books as an opportunity to talk about Malaise and his work as it relates to his modern obsession with collecting flies. Huh? Uh, other people have described it as a philosophical pleasure in the slowness of, quote, self-consciously useless activity of chasing flies and then fixing them with tiny pins. <laughs> I'm, th- I'm thinking of uh, Buffalo Bill now, like mm. with his little pins and his moths and everything. Oh, from like, Silence of the Lambs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like the idea of of collecting insects, like there's something like inherently... 
I don't know, the ritual of it, right? Like the slowness and the deliberate nature of the ritual. There's something to that. Apparently people are getting that out of these books. Goodbye horses. Yeah, exactly. Maybe, maybe on top of uh, pretending to be a fly, he's also sung goodbye horses while he's out there catching them. Uh, he wants to make it clear though, he's not really a missionary for naturalism though. His books include defenses of nature's gardens and meadows, but he's, according to the New York Times at least, pretty unpretentious about how he celebrates them. Mm. Now, uh, the Guardian, they actually sent somebody out to go hang out with him on his island and catch flies. Cool. Uh, and they said that he demonstrated all his weird ways to catch flies, including uh, he has a device called a pooter, uh, which sounds kind of like a straw that he sucks on and it like sucks up one of these hoverflies into it. Huh. And, uh, and then the other thing he uses, and this one was crazy, cyanide. He uses cyanide to catch these flies. And Whoa. the person from the Guardian was like, are you supposed to have that? And he's like, I don't know. It might be illegal. Um, <laughs> by, so by catch, you mean he uses this to, to poison flies. Yeah. I mean, okay. it's not like he's keeping these flies alive. <laughs> he's like, he's spearing them through the body with these needles. You know? Uh, this sounds like a Harrogate and Sutri kind of yeah. uh, <laughs> scheme going on here. Um, the person from the Guardian also described the book's themes as being natural literacy and again, an appeal to slowness. He sees his collecting as a relief from modern times by limiting himself to this pursuit. It provides him with calmness by kind of getting away from the world at large, just going out there, hanging out with the flies, some sucking them into a pooter, putting them in some cyanide, bringing them back and very slowly affixing them to a board. Hmm. So yeah, that was the literary prize and he showed up. I saw him on the thing. He seemed, he seemed like a cool guy. Uh, made some jokes and generally seemed like enthusiastic about being there. So the, the theme, the overarching theme for all of these awards was time. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So we had, do we see how that connects to to all of them? I mean, I see it here, right? Slowness. I guess it's, it's kind of like, say, an episode of This American Life. The, they have a theme. The first two episodes, the first two um, segments are going to hit that theme pretty hard. But then there's a, a tremendous amount of fall. Off oh, man. Robert Lamb going after the number one podcast in America <laughs> right I, now. I, I love this American life. I but, agree with you. Yeah. But that's the thing. Try to yeah. try to pick a theme and sustain it over four segments. They're yeah. trying to do it over ten. So it makes sense that uh, time fits some of these uh more easily than others. Yeah, I don't see how it fits into the one where those uh, uh, Japanese scientists were looking between their legs. Yeah, or the the horse one. I'm not really getting time off of that. I'm not but really they getting time. Certainly, from I mean, I can tell you really. from watching the ceremony, they certainly made use of the time metaphor. I mean, like I told you, there were three <laughs> musical numbers about time and clocks and TikToking, and then there was. There were the people who stood on the side wearing clock costumes that if you went over your limit, they would grab you and pull you away. Oh, they always do. Did they have the little girl this time? I didn't see uh, her. What's her I, name? Uh, I can't remember what her name was, but we... we Pootie Pie or something like yeah, that. Yeah, I complained about her last year because there's always one and then they grow up and last year they brought them all back. What were they called? Does anybody remember? I'm sure if we went back and listened to last year's episodes, they'd be on there. But yeah, there's always a little girl who's like the one who, what is she? She's do? the she Oscar playoff She says, music. I'm bored. Stop talking. Yeah. Right. Uh, and they, please stop. I'm bored. They didn't have her this year. Huh. Maybe they finally realized how obnoxious it was. 
They listened to that. You know what they did? They listened to stuff to blow your minds episodes on this last year. And they went, Ooh, maybe we need to rethink that. Why don't we just dress somebody up in a clock instead? <laughs> Christian, you are single handedly changing the world just by complaining about everything. Oh, finally, <laughs> finally some justification. Yeah. All right. Well, there you have it. The 2016 Ig Nobel prizes, uh, covered. Winner by winner across two episodes. If, uh, if you want to check out both episodes of this, uh, this series, if you want to check out last year's Ig Nobel uh, episodes, then head on over to stufftoblowyourmind.com. That's where you'll find all the podcasts. You'll find videos, blog posts, and links out to our various social media accounts. That's right. We are on Facebook. We're on Twitter. We're on Tumblr. And we are on Instagram. You'll find pictures from these two episodes on Instagram along with uh, details explaining them and uh, you could reach out to us on all those platforms if you want to ask us a question maybe you want to find out more about the white horses or Volkswagen or or uh, how good we are at lying uh, Joe where can they ask us those questions the old-fashioned way at blow the mind at howstuffworks.com For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 